Good morning and welcome to the Professor's World Peace Academy interview series. Today it's our great pleasure to have with us Dr. Gordon Anderson. He's a graduate of Claremont Graduate University. He's an expert in world social systems. He organized, a major, inter he organized major international conferences and published books on the Soviet system, China in a New Era, and the future of liberal democracies. His previous books include Philosophy of the United States, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, and Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, version 4.0. Please join me in welcoming to our program today, Dr. Gordon Anderson. Dr. Anderson, welcome. Yeah, my pleasure. This is great. We, we've done this once before on some of your prior work. We did one on this topic of social institutions earlier on. Ah, uh, uh, yes. I made a book on it. Was that part of what evolved into this book that we're going to discuss today? Uh, that's part of it, yes. Mm, very good. All right, well, let me, I've already introduced you and I've already introduced the book, but let's just real quick do that now again here in case somebody picks up in the middle of our interview here. So the book is entitled Integral Society, Social Institutions and Individual Sovereignty. Is it, it just, it just came out or just days ago or? It came out as an ebook about two weeks ago. All right. And, and is, uh, the print book will follow next spring. I see. Okay, so it's only available now in ebook. Yes. And it's purchasable uh, by it's your own? Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble. Or Amazon.com. Both places. Okay, wonderful. And uh, just curious, this is, I hadn't planned this, but what would, what would create a different time spacing for the release of an ebook and a print book? Because you said next spring. So what, how, would, how would, would it be the case that an ebook appears much earlier than the print volume? In this case, I'm using the ebook to gather criticisms and, uh, and corrections to try to improve it because it costs a lot more money to print the, the uh, actual print book and I wanna have it the best possible. The ebook, uh, I can revise it and upload and somebody with a Kindle can uh, get the latest version just by erasing their current version and downloading the new one without any extra cost. Congratulations, I didn't pay attention close enough to see that it's a Barnes & Noble. Is, is that the publisher or is it Paragon House Publishers? Paragon or? House Publisher, yeah. Very good, very good. Okay, and so in the tagline you describe or in the promotional literature, you describe that it challenges our, people of our present time to think about fundamental institutional changes needed to defend the sovereignty of individuals. That's the core thrust of the, of the book. Uh, that's, I would say that's a good description. That's John Roth's description from his uh, endorsement of the book. Yes. Yeah, very good, very good. In the same promotional literature, I don't know now if I'm quoting again from another scholar, praising your work, but it describes that the institutions are meant to serve sovereign individuals, not be exploited by them. And in the same paragraph, you say that while institutions have a valuable place in integral society, they must be kept to their mission, sphere, and level of society. Could you explain in a few words um, these spheres this would be helpful. Yes, this is actually in the appendix of the book and it builds on Ken Wilber's theory. Ken Wilber published a best-selling book, A Theory of Everything, in which he gives a big picture of the historical evolution 
of human development and consciousness. I have added the concept of spheres. He already has levels in his view, but uh, so levels of society would be like individual family, society, nation, world, cosmos, those different levels. Spheres of society are governance, culture, and economy. And these spheres, I explain, come out of something very related to human nature. Uh, it's uh, developed by Frederick Hayek in his idea of spontaneous social orders. But the idea is communication is the basis of culture. And the idea to produce an exchange is the basis of the economy. And the third is the almost automatic creation of laws. The people, when they get together, they make rules about how they're going to behave. And Hayek, Hayek argues that all these three things occur uh, whether, I mean, it's like breathing or eating. That, those are social aspects of our life is fundamental to, to social existence as breathing and eating are to biological existence. So social institutions often try, uh, and these are the basis of the three spheres, communication, you know, economy, for the desire to exchange and rulemaking for governance. So these are the three core spheres of society. And then you have the levels. So institutions fit in one of those spheres and at one of those levels. And the family does not exist at the global level, it's at the family level. The, and often institutions try to operate at the wrong level. For example, uh, in communism, you have the central government trying to plan people's daily economic lives. And that interferes with this natural desire to produce an exchange that is part of human nature. So anytime a social institution suppresses this natural, one of these natural impulses to communicate, to have fair laws, or to have free exchange of goods and services, then uh, human beings are frustrated by these social institutions. And we see today we're in a world where social institutions all over the place are trampling on individual so sovereignty. And that is, that is uh, you know, you see it when the World Economic Forum is trying to, you know, control what people eat and and what kind of food they have and what kind of money they use. Uh, you see it uh, all over the hijacking of universities and other institutions in all three spheres. Uh, so the idea is that institutions must remain in their proper sphere and at their proper level. When they, when they do that and they, and they serve according to their mission, then they're serving human beings rather than exploiting or oppressing them. Uh, but the, the nature of institutions, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is a slogan related to governance. Uh, but the same is true of other institutions. The institutions are human collectives. They have more power and usually more wealth than an individual would. So they can use that to their advantage to either serve or oppress people. And uh, we're, I'm arguing in this book that, uh, especially in the economic sphere, we're still living in feudalistic times where certain people control the money and the new, the new money and uh, through government and banking cabals they are uh, really preventing people from having a blessed life. A lot of questions came up in my mind as you were just describing the 
overall infrastructure or kind of skeleton on which your writing happens here. One of them is the sphere, you say the spheres were Wilbur's concept and the levels you've added in or? Oh, the levels are Wilbur's concept and they're kind of common. You see that uh, in lots of teachings and you see that in uh, traditional international relations courses, you have what's called the levels of analysis problem. The spheres are my own development. I see. And because each of them rely on different principles. And when one institution in one sphere tries to do something in another sphere, it's not properly equipped. For example, uh, government uh, might try to control language. We've recently had problems with censorship in the social media. And we can see that it suppresses that spontaneous nature of people's desire to communicate and seek truth. So it's the wrong sphere for uh, government is not the sphere of uh, language, it's culture. And that should, uh, should be free. Government would serve as a referee, not as a player in the case of language. Okay, so so the the spheres are what you've added into the equation in analysis for envisioning a healthy and wholesome right. society. So, so Wilbur's theory of everything had this real big picture with four quadrants and, uh, and all these different levels of development. Uh, the four quadrants are in, individual, internal, and external, social, internal, and external. So you can place everything related to individuals in those upper two quadrants, uh, mind and body, unity, etc. And in the lower two quadrants, you have uh, social consciousness or culture, and then the institutions that develop. And that relates to the interpersonal or transpersonal level of, of him social I see social life. I see it sounds like you've re, it sounds like you've added some refinement to the levels I'm I'm hearing basically two different levels in what you've just described as Wilbur's four quadrants and it, uh, earlier on you mentioned several levels like the individual the family the tribe and so forth yes Wilbur discusses that he takes the four quadrants and he goes from the big beginning like 12,000 years ago, little hunter-gatherer societies and draws a line out to the present day we're reaching what he calls an integral commons. Uh, that is where we have a consciousness. He, he talks about stage one and stage two or a tier one and two, tier two consciousness. Tier one consciousness is self-focused. And we know that when a baby's born, uh, just thinks about mother's nipple and <laughs> and uh, and the poop on its butt or whatever, and is totally self-focused. And then as we grow and mature, our consciousness develops to where we're able to think about others, how others might feel, come to a, a, a view what some. Christians would call it God's point of view, where you would see everyone as God's child. And so the second tier consciousness gets to that level where you're, you're, you're totally transcending your own ego in, in a higher view of consciousness. So Wilbur argues in his political side that the U.S. founding fathers were nearing this type of integral consciousness. Yeah, so what Wilbur has, he has this view of uh, both the levels and the quadrants. I see. And, and I with, added the spheres. So with the spheres, would it be the case that every level would have all three spheres in it? Yes. So in the personal, in the family, 
the economy, the culture, and the rules are given by the parents to the children. They manage that on, on their level. And they have a certain, should have a certain natural amount of responsibility on all three spheres. Yes. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you shouldn't have a gov ask a government to do for a family what a family can do for itself, which is the principle of subsidiarity, which in relation to le levels, this is a Catholic doctrine, but uh, I use it in the book, in relation to levels, you give the greatest responsibility to the lowest possible level because that leads to the highest amount of fulfillment and the least amount of uh, oppression. Very good. Um, a, few more, a few more questions naturally arising from your explanation so far. Uh, one of them very quickly is that you created the sphere of culture that arises out of... Yes, well, cult culture is, uh, you know, it relates to knowledge, education, but it, it comes out of this natural desire, when, when you talk about social interaction between human beings, there's a natural desire to communicate. Okay. People, people I, I'm, I'm out in the woods and I run into somebody, I want to communicate with them. Yes. And, and, here, and so language develops from that. Language develops from that and, and culture develops from language. It's, Yes, and knowledge develops in pursuit of truth. Each one of these spheres has an appropriate commandment. The cultural sphere would be thou shall not lie. Because uh, if, you, if you lie, then communication doesn't properly take place. And thou shall not steal in the economic sphere because everybody has the desire to produce an exchange. And if somebody takes their stuff, they rob them of that capacity. And thou shalt not kill is obvious the right to life. You can't even live and pursue happiness if you have no life. And you would place the killing as related to the governance sphere? Yes. Okay. Yeah, what, what I wanted to ask about is that each of these spheres will have a content dimension as well as a process dimension. So it would seem to me that communication is only just addressing the process dimension, whereas the content dimension in the cultural sphere is, is information. It's actually a commodity and lying relates more to the verity of the content. I guess it does use some process. You can become a skilled liar. That means you have communication powers. But the main thing you're doing is misrepresenting the facts of the matter. They're, they're not quite static, but you might, for argument's sake, it's a static entity. It's, a, it's like the coin of, the, of that realm. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. There is a process and a content dimension. The content is the, no is the knowledge or the understanding. And if uh, you create false knowledge or fake news, <laughs> you're kind of committing fraud. Now, fraud is a crime. That's something the government should uh, regulate because government should not control the content or generate the words, but it should uh, should be a referee in in the uh, enabling the free exchange of information. And and the means by which the determination of or misrepresentation of the facts of the matter that would fall that would fall to what means or, or authority or uh, where would where would government should just referee that communication freely transpires that's like, yeah, like I, so so government would come in if somebody claims they've been harmed by fraud and then there would be a 
go to court and if it's proven that somebody was injured by fraud, then the government would step in, but the government would not create any of the language to start out with. It's on the back end, not the front end of the exchange. It's on the back end. Right. So that so that the government has no say in what anyone chooses to represent. No, the government is not the appropriate uh, instrument for truth because government is based on power and law. And that tries to create truth that supports power. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and uh, that, that's always been a problem. The government right. always try to propagandize. And that has, to be, that has to be prevented. That's why they need to be kept to the limited role of referee. Uh, on the back end. On the back end, if somebody's harmed, the government should prevent that harm. So, I mean, it can, it can have a kind of a front end effect by having the law that tells somebody if you commit fraud, you're going to go to jail. And that's a deterrent aspect, but it has nothing to do with the content of the uh, communication. Yeah. It's it's somewhat of a it's somewhat of an idealistic formula, but it's fraught with very great difficulties. Correct. If say if say if someone says a drug would be helpful in the prevention or cure of a disease, and it proves to be not the case, is that person harmed to the extent that the government is punishing fraud? Or these are the types of things we're facing. In our day-to-day -day lives now. Yes, I th I think you know you have to come in, and that's why you have the judge side of the government. You have three parts of government. You have the legislation, the law creation, you have the administration, and you have the judges to settle disputes. And often, why you have a jury appears is because. The, the jury has some amount of compassion and some general re representation of the whole effect on society and has to uh, uh, make a judgment. The idea that any of these things can be clear, I think, is a fiction that a lot of people have, that you can have some absolute uh, law that applies in every case. I, th I think that's a fiction that a lot of people who do not have an integral consciousness kind of hold. It's a, it's a pre-integral pre uh, disposition. Correct. So, so integral, integral adds in the kind of supple or fluid or flexible elements of everything that has to come under consideration for a healthy society. Right. Yeah. Whereas, sorry, people with that imagine that there's something technically known as misinformation or disinformation, somewhat of a mechanistic sense of what what is the nature of what's true or what's yeah, or mechanistic or reductionistic. So, for example, do you have the, the question of climate change? Well, if your whole everything you do is based around some dogmatic notion of climate change. And it doesn't matter if people die because you're so concerned with your climate change policy, you know, maybe genocide becomes then a, uh, a, uh, a appropriate action in your, in your reductionistic mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not so integral. An integral would view the value of every, human life. It has intrinsic value. Uh, uh, according to Kant, Kant's categorical imperative, they treat everybody as an end in themselves, not as a means to some other end. Very good. The other thing, so in the other spheres, in the sphere of governance and in the sphere of commerce, there are these paired elements. There is the, the uh, content, so even in governance, the con the content is the is the mechanism of power of the mechanism of enforcement, and then there's the process 
which should govern or go govern or guide that particular content of that sphere. Yeah, you can view the processes like the operating system. You have a constitution, a set of laws. In a computer, you have an operating system that tells everything how it's going to all the components how they're going to communicate with all the other components to facilitate the job of word processing or whatever you want to do. And the same thing, the government law and the legislative process is is dictated by constitution but the actual content of the law is determined as it arises in the course of human events yes very good so so the, and finally the same with commerce or what you call enterprise what was that sphere you call the economic sphere economic sphere e economic there sphere is actually the most serious sphere that i address in the book because in the evolution of the cultural sphere, we had come to a level of individually uh, autonomy with the teaching of Martin Luther and other uh, Reformation principles that, that took control of knowledge away from the institution of the church or other social institutions or or it took it out of the realm of both the government and cultural institutions. So people gained individual cultural autonomy, which was a foundation for democracy in the political sphere. Political sphere, you have can't really have democracy without self-sufficient, self-reliant individuals. Okay. Uh, but the uh, in the economic sphere, we still suffer from feudalism. And this stems back to banking practices begun in 1696 in England, where the bank <coughs> fractional reserve banking creates what's called new money. I don't know if you understand that process, but say if you have $100,000 and you put in a savings account, Fractional reserve banking allows the bank to lend out a million dollars and hold your ten, your hundred thousand as a reserve. So, because enough people have savings that only so many are, you know, going to the bank and asking for their money at one time. So this 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 mechanism of fractional reserve banking has led to great economic growth. But the payments on that loan, which are backed by your $100,000, are taken by the bank. You should get the $1 million when the loan is paid. And the bank should be charged a service fee. And that's the way it was before. Uh, when did that change? 1696. And here's what happened. It was, it was illegal to do it because the banks were really stealing the depositors' money. Or they, the banks were, were working off of the, 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 were using the depositors' money to take the profit rather than giving the profit to the depositor and charging a service fee. But in 1696, the government says, hey, we're going to ignore that if you give us part of the reward. So this, this taxpayers paying, the, the depositors paying $100,000. Instead, of, we're not going to let you take a million dollars and just take it because and steal it from the depositor. But we'll let it slide if you give us a certain amount. So there's been these government and bank cabals where this new money is divided up between the bankers and the governments. And it's often used to fund military uh, industrial complex, or in, in the case of England, King William used it to fight wars when, when the system went into effect. 
and so the real question about frank, fractional reserve banking is who gets the money. And uh, if the depositors got it, the capital would be distributed throughout the whole society. And you would have everybody owning the capital, which funds all the industrial production and growth that we have, instead of the 1% or 3%. So we have a system now in which the governments and the bank take the 1%. And you had Marx arguing against that, but he wanted the party to take the 1%. Whereas I am arguing that the true economic democracy is this money is, a, is given equal opportunity among all citizens. And that would be the third, the, the evolution of uh, sovereignty or economic aut autonomy in the third sphere. So we have aut autonomy in the cultural sphere and the government sphere, we at least have glimpses of it. And in the U.S. founding, we have a particular good glimpse at it. Because at the U.S. founding, I, I want to introduce one more principle related to the economics, and that is what's called binary economics. Everybody has labor. We have our labor value, right? We can work so much. We put in eight hours a day. We get paid for it. Uh, it might be the banker you know, shuffling papers, or it might be a ditch digger digging ditches, but you're getting paid for your labor. And when the United States was founded, almost everybody was paid for their labor because almost everybody had their own business or, or their own farm. And there's very little developed by capital. I explained that uh, about 95% of production came from labor at the time of the US founding. So you had economic democracy, but the development of capital and capital and, and machines and now today art, artificial intelligence and robots, you have production generated from capital rather than human labor. So we have this problem where today we, instead of 95, so in case, instead of 95% of production coming from our labor, we have 95% of our production coming from capital. Really? Only 1% of the population receives this, or 3% receives most of this because of the way this money is distributed, this new fractional reserve banking money almost 97% of the new money ends up in the hands of just a few people. Whereas if it was illegal for the banks to take the depositors money, but the banks had to pay the depositors the payments on this, then everybody in the country could be a depositor and everybody could be an ownership of the means of production because they would receive the payments on the capital investments that the banks receive today. And the banks are receiving those payments on your money. That's, that's not even legitimate enterprise, but it's been going on so long that even bankers just assume it as the normal practice, even though it's highly unethical and unjust. So uh, I have hundreds of questions. I. Uh... I'm planning, or I hope you will have time going forward that we can take up little sections of your book further. But very quickly, the fact that capital rather than labor is producing, would you call it wealth or is pretty? It's the basis of wealth. Yeah, right. It's the basis of all the wealth produced from machines. And okay. Uh, or artificial intelligence, robots, all the things that instead of individual labor, things are being produced in other ways. So, and you would say that capital is generating that value, that wealth, that, that grow, economic growth. You've mentioned two elements in banking that define or have 
a strong influence or maybe even define the current economic reality we face today. One was fractional reserve banking. It was developed where, please? Well, it was developed in uh, Sweden, but bankers have always been trying to use other people's money to profit on them. And uh, if they could dip into reserves, they would try to get away with it. But it became legal in Sweden to hold a 10% reserve. And then uh, banks could lend out the rest because not everybody would be running on the bank for money at the same time. And that allowed the it allows the economy to expand very rapidly compared to waiting for somebody to mine gold and have every, everything tied. Uh, all the rest of the economy can only grow as fast as gold is mined or something. Understood. Okay. Okay. And then the other thing is you mentioned what's called binary. Was it binary economics or binary banking or what was binary that? economics? It's when you get an income from both labor and capital. Now everybody pretty much gets an income from their labor and their salary or their paycheck, but uh, income from capital would be extra money that comes from. Uh, lending to corporations who are building and then receiving the payments back on that. And all that new capital was developed. I think uh, in 2019, the US developed $4 trillion in new capital that added to the economy. And so just a few people got that. Whereas uh, if that were spread out among the entire population, it'd be $10,000 per person. Okay. I always thought that capital, capital's capacity to produce value or wealth came from the money itself. But we were discussing earlier, possibly before the, uh, this interview, that you even include the money produced by AI, by robots, by machines. That's, that's capital producing value? That, yes, it takes capital to buy the machines. You couldn't set up a Tesla factory without capital. You, you just wouldn't have a bunch of people getting together with manual labor. And uh, you, you need, uh, you, you know, and, and the industrial sector has evolved over time. So you would buy big machines from other companies and then you would typically borrow money from a bank. And the bank would, as I mentioned before, be using your $100,000, getting a million dollars back on a five-year loan at 8%. And they they give you like 0.1% on that today, but you should be getting about uh, a 200% return on Understood. that. Okay, so there's two things, there's two things producing genuine increase in wealth and value. But the problem is not that capital produces value, that's not the problem, or even that fractional reserve banking is a way to heat up the economy or create growth. That's not a problem either. The problem is the way things are structured in a corrupt fashion that only a tiny few people sees all of the value that's produced. Is that what you're... That's, that's right. So only, uh, it's like uh, uh, just a few percent of the population own 90 some percent of the capital and, and receive 90% of the, uh, and, and you know, they, you, you get, you get income just from production and selling things, you can have a profit, but you all, and that goes to the stockholders or in our corrupt system, a lot of it goes to the government. Uh, but uh, you have, so you have income from lending and you have income from stock ownership. You know, the concern about Marx is the workers didn't own the means of production. Well, I'm, arguing that, that that is observation is correct, that everybody should own the means of production. Everybody should have the opportunity to invest in all the companies and, and, and receive 
both the proceeds from the loans that those companies take and as well as uh, as income on stock dividends. And you you would have everybody in the country largely being the middle class, just like when the US was founded, everybody you had an economic democracy because everybody's income was from labor. What I'm proposing is a system in which everybody's income is from labor and capital. And you don't have a situation like where Warren Buffett pays 10% on his income and the secretary pays 40% on hers because hers is labor and his is capital. You should be charging the same taxes on capital income as uh, labor income. Real quickly, how, of course, Marx's experiment resulted in the darkest period of, of human affairs, mass genocide, the worst ever. Um, how, what do you envision in terms of, in terms of the equalization that you're advocating that would travel a different path than what happened to the yeah, Marx? Marx, Marx wanted to totally centralize ownership of capital and even make it less than the owners, just the, the leaders of the party that controlled it. Whereas, uh, and, and the government sphere is not even the right sphere. It's not part of the economic sphere. So the principles aren't even right for making an economy work. What I'm proposing is distribution of ownership of capital. So, so- but Wasn't he saying, uh, right, that, the, that everyone owns the means of production wasn't that his slogan? That I, I would think that, that he would be happy with that outcome, but that never happened. And it's not clear from the Communist Manifesto that he really wanted all the workers to own the means of production, but that uh, the party would intervene on the workers' behalf because they weren't smart enough to manage it themselves. And that's a, certainly the way Lenin went. And that's the way the World Economic Forum is going today. But the World Economic Forum makes no pretense of wanting mass distribution of the means of production. And no, and, and neither did Marx, because Marx actually talked about, he read, they, at least the Marxists, the Communist Party today, defines private property as distinct as from what you own, your house or your car or your bed, but private property is a special means of, uh, it's the capital ownership for the means of production. And so he, he said that he made people in his rhetoric, he made people believe that the workers should own the means of production, but then he turns around and says, give it to the party who will act on the workers' behalf. And that's the mistake. So really, the workers should own the means of production, not only not only the workers, but uh, anyone who's who's involved in in, in because Marx took kind of labor theory of value. He didn't have binary economics. He didn't have a a, a, a capital theory of value. Very good. Who would over who would guarantee that the distribution would meet this idealistic uh, concept that you're putting forward, because what we would have to do would be avoid something like the party, which became a totalitarian tyranny. Yes, so th there's two proposals I have in my book, and one of them is just natural. You have nobody overseeing it. You just have people investing in savings accounts and the actual capital produced from those savings is given back to the depositors. So if you have $100,000 in your bank, you might have a million dollars after five years. It's just structuring. The amount the banker would have, the banker would get a million dollars on your money on a five-year loan at 8% to a corporate corporation. But that that is not their money. They're guaranteeing it with your deposit. So that would distribute. Everybody can have a savings account. And if everybody's making 200, 
be 30% on a 30-year mortgage on a house and 200% on a 8% five-year industrial loan. It depends on the type of loan. But, uh, you know, people would would all be highly motivated to save and prosper greatly from their savings rather than just a few percent taking it all. And using it for also unworthy purposes like military wars. Would there need to be any renaissance of human nature involved? Or you could you imagine that this could be just just managed in no, a it would of- it would just happen in this system, it would just happen spontaneously because of the spontaneous nature of the desire of human beings to exchange, as long as you keep it in the economic sphere. Now there are proposals. And some of them are pretty good, where this new money would get divided into uh, capital homestead accounts. So everybody at birth would get a capital homestead account. And then the banks, you'd need something like some entity like the Federal Reserve to deposit those monies equally in everybody's capital homestead account. That would be really giving everybody exactly the same, but that would eliminate the motives for savings because everybody would automatically get it. Uh, so you would, and you could argue that it would be more just, but I don't think it would be as uh, economically efficient as the normal market. An- another part of our prior conversations had to do with your sense of timing or or historical timing because in a certain way perhaps or i speak for myself i was going to say the hearer or the listener of our show but uh there's there i there seems an idealism in what you're recommending it's hard for me to envision the mere manipulation of uh systems that could that could utterly ignore the dysfunctional or dark side of human behavior, greed, lust. So you need checks and balances to prevent that. So in the Constitution that I propose, no government could borrow money from a central bank in which it controls the currency. It could only, you can only borrow from some other entity, not from a cabal. And so that would, that would uh, greatly limit the uh, government's ability to collude in this and and uh, backhandedly sanction the banks stealing it because they say, okay, well, you can steal it, but give me a kickback. That's basically the system we have today. So the Constitution would forbid that. In a way, just simply a hard separation of the two, making the two non-collaborative at the expense uh, yeah, of the it, citizens. It's, it's the same way today. A state, individual state, can't print money. So an individual state can't do this. And, and an individual state can't isn't part of the cabal. It's only the federal government, the Federal Reserve, in the case of the United States or the European Central Bank or the Bank of England, that uh, are involved in these... Uh, corrupt cabals, Bank of China, where the Communist Party does the same thing. So, yeah, it's mainly a separation of uh, separation of powers. They would be unable to do it. Government would be unable to do it, and the banks would be, would be forced. They'd be punished if they didn't pay the payments that came from this new capital if it didn't go back to the depositors. Okay. They try to keep it, of course, uh, yeah. and if, and if, but if if they receive stiff enough penalties for not distributing these funds, and you know, in my example of a hundred thousand dollar deposit and a million dollars coming back in payments, the interest at eight percent on that would be about one hundred ninety four thousand dollars. Now that's no small amount. That's plenty for a bank to to push papers and have its own labor income. I mean, the banks banks wouldn't suffer uh, any more than the average person. They would be getting plenty for their labor income. Very good. 
Well, there's a lot, a lot more I want to ask. I had a lot of questions based on one of the beauty of your book is that you make things very clear. You outline, I'm going to speak about these things. The book is divided into these parts. You explain the parts. You have a constitution, which you've proposed. Uh, and so there, I have a lot of questions. We've concentrated mo mainly on the issue of uh, banking and, uh, and the, uh, the kind of grand theft from the citizenry. Uh, but there's much more to discuss. Just before you go, you mentioned to me that your sense that this is a time in history that something uh, revolutionary or something, a great leap could happen. Could you mention a word on that? You do see all over the world. You see, you see the, the, uh, the tremendous inflation because the banks have, have like taken this cabal to almost the limit. They can't hardly sustain it anymore. So you're seeing uh, possibilities of economic collapse. You're seeing uh, possibilities of rigged elections. You're seeing all kinds of complaints about uh, individuals complaining against social institutions. And uh, that's happening all over in all kinds, whether it be social media <laughs> institutions or whatever, but uh, people are starting to realize that we don't have the controls on social institutions that are needed. They've evolved since our constitutions were developed uh, 300 years ago. Now, we didn't have any corporations in the United States. We outlawed the Hudson's Bay Company and the East India Company and started from scratch, mainly with uh, labor power and family businesses. So you're suggesting that the level of corruption or the level of dysfunction has reached almost an insufferable limit, that change is being forced. There's no further to go in the dysfunction of what has evolved institutionally. Well, you're seeing people waking up. They're talking about this time as even a second great awakening. And you had the great awakening in the 1730s before the the original uh, U.S. revolution, but the, the Donald Trump, uh, the nationalist movements, the Brazilian election, all of these things are, uh, and, and uh, protests against the World Economic Forum and the vaccines and government mandates. People are just getting fed up with what institutions are doing to them. Okay. I in our next conversation, I'd like to talk about these levels that you introduced in the beginning of our interview here. And uh, my question will be, I, I'm going to wrap up now, but my question will be, can a dysfunction or oppression or, or kind of a tyrannical control be from just one level up? Or do you leap across to federal control way down of the family that kind of thing i'd like to look at next time we're together yeah um, that's that's an important point and and uh, there are examples of uh of skipping levels yeah this is a i think this will be an important thing to look at when we're together next it's it's okay. been a great great uh chance to be together again dr anderson is i always enjoy listening to your understanding all right. Thank you. Thank you very it's much. Been a pleasure. See you soon. Okay.